0: back in Mark chapter 7. We're going to be in Mark for a few more weeks, and then we're going to take a four-week break as we start off um, the, the new ministry season in August, and we're going to do a four-week series on community, why we need one another, that kind of thing, and then we'll return to Mark after that. But we're in Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 13, and if you would turn there and then and then maybe flip over, hold your place there, and flip over to Proverbs 4, 23. I want to highlight a verse there as well. I've been in full-time vocational ministry for almost um, 24 years. And in that time, I've seen a lot of uh, students, particularly because I was in student ministry so long, who have been around the Word, who have uh, received the Word, and they've taken it in deep into their heart. They've left uh, and moved on, and their lives have continued to follow God, pursued Jesus, Make him Lord. Their families have flourished. They've continued to build upon the things that they've learned. Unfortunately, there's many other people who I stay in contact with or see on social media who have went through many of the same experiences. Yet we find that their life has brought about a lot of destruction over the last years since I taught them and they were in my ministry. Uh, families have been destroyed. Churches have been destroyed because of dissensions. There's been so much chaos from people's lives. And situations and I think a lot of it falls back to this verse in Proverbs which is a, a very very meaningful verse to me it says above all else guard your heart for everything you do flows from it guard your heart for everything you do flows from it and that's the picture the picture is is our heart is like a stream of water that continually flows out to touch and impact those who were around those who we come in contact with and so if there's issues in our heart then we're going to destroy relationships. We're going to cause division and dissension in churches. We're going to cause problems in the situations we find ourselves in. We won't be able to work through difficulties and conflicts that are going to be inevitable at times. And so I I think the lesson that we can gain from today's text is that God wants us to take our hearts seriously. And it's not the thing that's beating your chest. We'll talk more about that in a second. But God wants us to guard our hearts so we can be pure in the heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. They'll see God. They'll know God. They'll, they'll understand who God is, and they'll be people of reconciliation rather than people who bring destruction. So Mark chapter 7, and use that as kind of a backdrop as we see what Jesus has to say about the heart. Verse 1 through 13. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father and mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition, that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let's pray, and we'll look at this passage. God, we thank you so much for your word that gives us life, it gives us purpose, it gives us direction in this world that so often is confusing, and the effects of sin are all around us. And God, even our own hearts, our own selves, God, we sometimes just are confused by the, the motives and desires and the things that even drive us, and, and, and cause us to run from you, God. And I pray today that this this text, this passage in your scripture, and the Holy Spirit taking these truths will drive us to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Maybe you might be familiar with uh, Christian comedians. If you're at all, go on YouTube and maybe look uh, under clean comedians or something, you might come across a guy like John Crisp or a Chris or a guy like Tim Hawkins. And these are guys who build most of their comedy routines around the Christian culture, the insider stuff of Christianity. And and to be honest, a lot of the material that they do, if you did not grow up in church, if you weren't in our culture, you would probably be a little clueless and wouldn't fully get the humor that they have to talk about. And I think it's one of the difficulties of Mark 7, Mark seven is if you're not Jewish, which most of us are not, if you didn't weren't alive in the first century, you probably don't really understand some of the nuances and some of the deeper things that are happening here and some of the layers that are behind the scenes. And it would be easy to hear this passage if you didn't know the backstory, you didn't know the insider stuff, and you might think, well, these Jewish religious leaders, they're very concerned with germs. I mean, they're, they're all about hygiene, and, and, and they're really, you know, what is that? Like, they're the germ police looking at these disciples and saying, what's up? You know, why aren't they washing their hands? It's gross. It's nasty.'" But that's not at all what's going on here, and so understanding the story behind the story here is really critical to get the the gist of this passage. And so let's look back at verse 1 and 2, and then we'll talk a little bit about this as we go through. And so the Pharisees gathered uh, to him uh, with some of the scribes, and the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees were people who just really held to a a code, a standard of morality. Uh, They uh, not only followed the law of Moses, but we learn and we've talked about before, they've added a lot of stuff to this just to make sure they don't break any of the commandments. The scribes were the teachers of the Torah, of the law, and so these people here, they're back. I say back because they've confronted Jesus before. We've seen it back in chapter 3, and now they're back from Jerusalem, and they're coming. They're plotting against Jesus. I don't think this has risen to the level yet of wanting necessarily to kill Jesus. One, because the crowds uh, are, are really for Jesus. They're behind Jesus. He's doing a lot of amazing things, but also the fact that you know they're they're a little bit confused by him. They're really unsure about him. And Jesus at this point hasn't declared himself a, a, to the masses as I am the Messiah, I'm the Christ. In those words, he's taught in parables. He's alluded to things, but we'll see that coming up later in the book. But they're out to get him because they don't like him. But they're threatened by his popularity. And so they um, come and they begin to point out this issue about the uh, disciples and their hands not being washed. And like I said, this has nothing to do with hygiene. It seems very minor to us. But verses 3 and 4 kind of show us, uh, for one, that Mark is writing to a primarily Gentile audience because he explains these traditions, these customs. The Jewish uh, person would not need this explanation. They would know very well what this was all about, and so he gives this little parenthesis, and he says, uh, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, and they hold to these traditions, and even goes into detail to tell about some of the things that they do, and uh, to, to have this purity and this cleanliness, and so there are these very strict moral codes, these purity codes that existed during this time, and Jesus was being attacked over his disciples, not Keeping these traditions, these things that were expected of good Jewish people in their society, and it's clear from their accusations that they're holding Jesus responsible. It's really about Jesus, the most part. They're they're going after Christ, and and they say, why why do your disciples not hold to these? traditions and so let's kind of break down a few of these layers here and what's going on and this is not just in itself this dispute is not a one-time thing like I said it's been this has been brewing this has been going because Jesus disciples and Jesus have kind of blown off some of their religious customs and traditions several times already in this book if you remember back in chapter two we saw that the religious leaders they confronted Jesus because he was eating with sinners he was hanging out with those who they considered um, outcasts. These people were immoral sinners. that should, I mean, To even get close to these people uh, is ungodly, more or less to sit and dine and interact and, and to care about them. And so they had confronted Jesus about that already in chapter 2, and then they accused Jesus of violating the Sabbath, their holy day, Saturday, the day of rest, which we know Jesus and his disciples actually did not, disobey the commands of Moses about the Sabbath, but they didn't give any credence, any credibility to what they said should happen or not happen on the Sabbath. So they were adding these, tacking on these other things to the law in order to uh, make sure the law wasn't kept guardrails, uh, per se, around the law to make sure that the law was not broken. But in doing that, they set these things up that were not of God, but yet they wanted to hold them up to the same level As authority and authority of scripture. And so what Jesus, what their resentment to Jesus really is about here is about Jesus' authority. They resented, the religious leaders resented Jesus because he taught with authority. He taught with authority. Imagine that. Imagine that you've had all these generations and all their forefathers who had added to and and, and, and contributed to and make commentary on the law For good reason, to protect the law, it started out probably as a good reason, but over the centuries and over the generations, more and more and more was added to this. So when Jesus comes on the scene, and think about the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus stood up and he said, you have heard it said, and then he exposes these traditions, these sayings, these things that were added, this commentary by the rabbis and leaders. He said, you've heard it said, but I tell you, that's serious authority issues, right? I mean, he's, he's really saying, I'm going to clarify what you thought to be the true, but isn't true anymore. I'm going to clarify and give you the truth. I'm going to tell you what this is all about. So imagine how they, that would have been received. I mean, to try to give you like a, a current example, which I couldn't really think of something that would be as serious and stern as this, but think about something even small like if if I went to the elders and I said I I, of our church and I said you know I really don't think we need to do uh, sing before we do the word read the word and preach the word we should just save singing for the end of the service all right and we'll start with preaching and we'll do the singing at the end and some of them might say I hope not I think they understand the word is the most important thing although singing is very very important and we we express our, our thoughts to God but some might think okay who are you, again, to be telling us how we're, I mean, we've done things all this way? And maybe you would think the same thing. Hey, we've always done this this way. How, how can you just come in and say, you know, turn this around and say, we're going to do this different? And so that's a very, very small example of what the authority Jesus. I mean, here's this guy from Nazareth, this guy from Galilee. That he's, I mean, he's from this rural area where nobody has any respect for. And, and he's come on the scene. He's the son of a carpenter. Uh, There's even rumors that he was born out of wedlock. Who is he to tell us how to interpret the law? And so the the root issue here is Jesus' authority. And so they've allowed all of these these rules to, to come equal by all practical matters with Scripture. And Jesus is saying, it's not the case it's not right. You're, you're not speaking for God. And so he confronts them on this. And all these things that have evolved over the century, which have in effect added to God's word, which is clearly forbidden in scripture. And so they would see these things, if, if, if one would sit down at, at that first century and talk to a Pharisee, they would say, no, no, this is a fence for the law. This is to protect the law and these traditions are protecting it. But that's not the way that Jesus saw it and so there was no scriptural law requiring ordinary people to go through a ritual cleansing and hand washing before they ate food. This was an oral, oral tradition passed down. And eventually, um, these oral traditions, and there were many, many of them, were composed in about the third century. They were put into a book. And so they were put in writing, although they were just passed down orally, which uh, oral traditions were very dependable during that time. I mean, they, these things were, were were ironclad, so you knew you were getting the right information being passed down. But in the 3rd century, they put these things together so they would not be lost. And get this, over 25% of this book that they compiled with all these oral traditions, over 25% was about cleanliness and purity. So this was a big deal for them, okay? I can't um, really emphasize that em- enough, how big these things were. In fact, one Jewish commentator I was reading uh, said that eating bread without washing during this time was as serious as having relations with a prostitute. So you can understand, I mean, th- this is huge. This is a big deal. And then let's kind of get down to a, kind of a second layer here of what's going on. So Jesus' authority trying to dispute and say, look, your, your your traditions, your forefathers had this wrong, but also these purity laws were there for a purpose. They weren't there just for the sake of being there. They were there to remind the Jews of their status as the chosen people of God and separate them from those around. To remind them that they were God's chosen people and to separate them from others. And so things like circumcision, dietary laws, purity laws, all these were physical indicators to show that the Jewish people were God's people and they were to be set apart. They were to be different from the nations around them. And so even if, even if uh, as alluded to in verse 4, if a Jewish person went to the marketplace where Gentiles were, they had to come back and take a, take a bath before they would eat their food. And so they were unclean. They were uh, purely uh, ceremonially unclean because of that. And, and here's the thing. Although that circumcision definitely was commanded by God and priests were required to do cleansing before they did certain sacrifices in the temple and so on, all these things that they've added to God's law was never his intent, and it was actually very, very prideful, because Israel, as God's chosen people, were to be a light to the nations. They were to display the holiness of God to those around. But all of this building up these walls, all it ultimately did was put them in an elite class above everybody else. Oh, I can't get near you, I can't touch you, I can't interact with you, because you you're guilty, you're a sinner, you're unclean, you're not like us. So it's become a, a point of pride and, and it's missed the whole point of what it was about. Is saying that, that, that God's people are different, but we're not elite. We're different. We're unique. And the church can do the very same thing. We can become so pious in our morality that we actually put ourselves on a different level of everyone else, and and people look it up and say, oh, they're so goody-goody Christians, and we miss the point that the reason that we're holy is because God is holy, and our holiness should be a way to point people to God, not a way to separate from people. And so while some separation in some situations obviously is wise, the point can't be missed, that holiness reveals the character of God. Holiness is not, not about being better than other people. So the Jews had gotten confused on this point. They missed the point. They, they were displaying the holiness of God. And so they could completely comply with all these rituals. They could have the, the cleanest hands around, but yet their hearts were so full of sin and could go untouched. And Jesus gets to this in verse, in verse 6. He says, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, their heart is far from me. So they put this show of holiness. They they have this exterior that they're holy and they're righteous, but the heart, which God cares about, was totally, totally dirty and, and disgusting. And this... This thing of the heart, when we talk about the heart, I mean, we know our culture has adopted this idea, but mostly when we think about heart, we think about emotions, we think about affections and feelings. I mean, think about maybe sometime you said to your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, I, I love you with all my heart, all my heart, I love you. What do you mean by that? You just mean your affections, your, your, your emotions, you love this person, but in the Bible, it's broader than that. The heart includes that, but it's broader than that. It really includes all of your deepest moral and spiritual convictions along with your feelings and emotions, but especially your deepest moral and spiritual convictions in relation to God and about your relationship with God. So when we talk about heart and when Jesus is talking about heart and he's saying, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. He's saying what makes you, you is far from me. What what makes you who you really are at your core. And the heart is the reason why we do the things we do and the reasons we say the things we say. Because we literally, whether you know it or not, you live out of your heart. You live out of your heart. And so Jesus is getting down and drilling down in these these religious leaders who were so full of themselves. And he was saying, Look, your motivation. What you're doing is is this empty ritualism. Rather than this being for the glory of God, it's turned into something completely and utterly different. It's not about my glory anymore. It's about you. It's about you feeling good and you feeling superior, you feeling righteous. Think about for a second, think about guys, if your wife's birthday is coming up in a couple days and you know, a lot of times we're not the best, are we, at remembering important dates. And so, like, the day before, the day of, you remember, you know, I better, I better hit Walmart and get a card for my wife, right? And, and, you, and you run in there, and you don't have time, and you don't like looking through those cards anyway. And you just run by, and you see the birthday section for wife under there. And, you know, you just, okay, grab that one. Oh, that looks good. And, and you run home with that thing, and you open it up, and you, and, you, and, you, and you take it, and you sign your name to it, and then you give it to your wife. And she gets it and, and on her birthday, and she opens it up, and, and she reads it, and she says, When I met you, I had no idea how much my life was about to be changed. But then, how could I have known? A love like ours happens once in a lifetime. You were such a miracle to me, the one who was everything I have ever dreamed of, the one I thought existed only in my imagination. And you can just see her heart melting, right? She's reading this. And when you come when you came into my life, I realized that what I had always thought was happiness couldn't compare to the joy of loving the love you brought to me. You are a part of everything I think and do and feel. And she says, Oh it's so sweet. That's so so special. Ah and you're thinking, you know, I didn't really read that, right? I mean, I, I didn't even really take the time to look at that. But, you know, I, Hallmark, I can depend on the Hallmark. They're pretty solid. You know, you got some dude in there writing, you know, oh, this sounds good. What do you think about this, Joe? How's that? Oh, yeah, put that down. And, and you're writing, and you're like, yeah, they're, they're reliable. They can, I can't go wrong on that. And you sign your name, and your wife takes it, and she hangs it wherever, puts it, displays it. And then in a few days, she puts it where she puts maybe things that, you know, keepsakes she wants to keep, or maybe, you know, eventually it makes it into the trash. And you, you see that, and you're like, okay, I can save myself a lot of trouble and effort next year, and so you take that thing, she's not looking, you take it, you bring it back, you put it in a special place, and you make a note on your phone, remember to get my card out next year and give it to her. And then next year, you get that card out, and you give it to her, and she opens it up. She might start thinking, you know, that looks a little familiar. But you know, a lot of these cards sound the same, and that's, you know, that's, that's a sweet, thank you. But you do that three, four years in a row, I promise you, even if she's not the brightest gal around, right? She's going she's <laughs> to figure out that this card is being recycled. And truthfully, she's going to know for certain that these are not any words that mean anything to you whatsoever. These were words that you just signed your name to, said, these are my thoughts, but they really weren't at all. And that's the danger of empty ritualism. It's just ascribing something to God as worship that really isn't worship at all. Why? Because it's not from the heart. It's not coming from a place of the heart. It's coming because it's just the thing I do. And that's why in verse 6 he refers to Isaiah and he, he says, you're just hypocrites. You're just actors. You're just pretenders. Your heart has no desire for God's glory whatsoever. You're just recycling Hallmark cards again and again. You're just coming and you're doing the washing. You're doing the cleansing. You're doing the stuff. But nothing is true and real about the worship that you're giving. It's all just fake. You're pretending. And we can fall in the same category by saying, you know what? I feel better about myself today because I went to church. But yet you're sitting here and you're really not engaging truth. You're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. And you walk out, and, 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 and if I didn't bring this to your attention, you might, you know, think, "Ah, I really, I really made a great effort to be there today. I feel good about myself. You know, I, I really feel like, you know, you know, just this for you, God, thanks. You know, yeah, you're welcome. You know, I'm, I'm glad to give you a couple hours of my day. And we can fall into that category where we think that. We've done God a favor by attending church. Empty ritualism. You know, another, you know, I was thinking other examples of what might be comparable to the Pharisees. And, you know, a lot of times we put on those bracelets that remind us of a verse or a little slogan or whatever. And we wear that thing. And, you know, at first it's, it's really meaningful because we look at it and we, we remember, you know, live love. And oh, I've got to live love today. Jesus, help me to live your love to those around me. And, and, and it can become, a, it was a very good thing at the beginning. But over time, you just throw it on there and you've totally forgotten what it was all about. You've long since missed out on what the purpose was and you just do it. And, and you know, maybe you do it because, you know, oh, if I don't wear that, you know, God will maybe like punish me or God's going to be mad because I didn't do that. And so so your ritual becomes like a superstition that God's going to give you some kind of protection or some kind of special favor, because you're doing some routine. And that's what these guys were doing, these Pharisees were doing. In their day, which wouldn't be the same as ours, they would see that as a sign of piety. You know, people would look at them and say, wow, you're so great. You're amazing. You're so moral. You you know, if only I could be like you, so close to God. And while that's not a comparable contemporary example, because We don't do those type of things for recognition typically because more than often we get more scorn than we would praise for that. But yet you see the point. And so verse 8 says, they leave the commandment of God and they hold to the tradition of man. They've lost the whole point in the matter. They've lost the fact that this was about God's commands and protecting God's commands and honoring God. And they've left that. And now they're following out after their own rules, their own rituals that just make them feel like they're superior. And it, here, this is important, I think, to say at this point, kind of step back for a second. Rules, traditions are not bad things in and themselves. In fact, there's a lot of things that you probably have in your life that um, are rules or, or, or kind of guardrails or margins you put into your life to protect you from certain sins or from doing certain things or being in certain situations where you know that you might be more likely to give in to temptation. Those things are not bad things. They become bad things when we leave, when we depart from the purpose that they were there in the first place. They can have value, but they're not substitutes for the fruit of the Spirit, which come about from being connected to the vine, being connected to God. And so, when we begin to look at the things that we don't do, extra-biblical things that we don't do, to protect us from the things that might be disobedient to God's commands or the things that we do to help us obey God's commands. And when we begin to look at those things and put our morality and our feeling of favor with God into those things, rather than cultivating the fruit of the Spirit through a connection with God, through being connected to Him and knowing Him and having a real relationship with Him, then our traditions violate the very commands that we set out to obey and to honor in the first place. And we we sin. Plain and simple, we sin. And here's the most dangerous thing about this sin of what we call legalism. That's what we call it if you're newer to church. It's called legalism. It's often, it gets celebrated in churches. Because it's a thing that's motivated from a deceptive heart. Nobody can see your heart but God. But yet the things that we do are motivated in a way that is contrary completely to God. And we know pride is the complete opposite of the character of God. Everything that God is about, pride is the opposite of that. And these things begin to be driven by pride. And I'm going to give you a few kind of things that... um, Kind of legalism does to us and what it, and what it causes in our hearts it, it becomes sinful when someone believes that they can do something to earn God's favor and even obtain salvation and hopefully in here we've done a good enough job if you've been around for at all very long that we've done a great job of showing you that salvation is not by works not by works that we're saved it's through faith in Jesus Christ not of works, Scripture says, lest we become pride, proud and we boast about it. So it's not about us. It's not about our morality. So kind of the, excuse me, the first level of this legalism is, is thinking that some way you can earn your salvation through your efforts, through your works. And that can be very deceptive and, and, it, and it can really be sometimes confusing based upon how you were raised and what church tradition you were raised in because people who think that they can lose their salvation because they committed X sin or Y sin, they miss the point of the gospel. They miss the point of when we are in Christ, we stand justified before God, declared righteous, our position before God, what we call positionally before God, we're declared righteous because of faith in Jesus Christ. We stand holy. God accepts us. Not because we've done something to earn that or or to merit that or to, to live up to some standard, All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's the gospel. And so please listen carefully to this point. That anything you think you need to do to add to your acceptance by God is a lie from Satan. Satan wants to deceive you and make you think that you've got to add to it. And then maybe one day you'll get in because hopefully your good will outweigh your bad. And that is a false gospel. Yet a lot of people, even in Bible teaching churches, walk out and ultimately believe that because Satan blinds the eyes of people to believe that's the case. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest we boast, lest we think we've done something. It's all about Jesus and what he did for us. And so it's not this legalism, this type of layer one legalism, it's not just a Reduction of the gospel. It's another gospel altogether. The second kind of level of this is that when believers are expected to submit to a man made commandment as if it was God's law. And so while this one doesn't hit at the heart of salvation and our very relationship with God, this one's still very, very dangerous because all of a sudden, just like the Pharisees and the scribes, we begin to add on these commandments which may be a good thing in our life because it keeps us focused on God, focused on his holiness, on who he is. But we take those things that are good for us and we start saying, you better keep those as well. You better do that. Why aren't you doing that? If you'd only see it my way, you know, then you'd be closer to God and have a better relationship with God. And your sanctification, you're, you're becoming holy as God's holy in a practical matter, which is sanctification, becomes about submitting to man-made rules and standards. And you abandon God's word for the sake of your standards. We've got to be very, very careful of that. Like I said, it masquerades as godliness. Somebody may look at you and say, wow, they're so, so good at this Christianity thing. And then they tell you, well, here's what you need to do. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this. Oh, can you give me chapter and verse on those things? Well, I can give you the principle, but that's not actually in there anywhere. Oh, okay. Yet we mislead people to make them think that this is some sort of gospel that's in Scripture, and it's not. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Kind of the third level of this is when we obey God, and do good in order to retain God's favor, to retain God's favor. So maybe we don't think we're earning God's favor, but we're retaining his favor. And I, and I see this a lot when something goes wrong and people are prone to ask, what did I do to deserve this from God? Or God is punishing me for doing something. When a Christian asks that question, that really strikes at legalism, that God's looking to punish you. You stepped out of bounds, so I'm, I'm going to bring punishment on you. Well, here's the gospel. Jesus took the punishment that you deserved. He took the punishment. God is for you, not against you. God is for you, not against you. He is not looking to just bring the hammer down on you because you messed up or had a bad day or a bad week or a bad month. Yes, God disciplines his children. But all you have to do if you're a parent is put your mind, if you're a good parent, an average parent, just put yourself in the mind here, in, in, in the mindset of a parent. You don't discipline your child to destroy them. You don't, you don't correct them to humiliate them and, and, and give them what they deserve. You do that, hopefully, to help them become a better functioning adult who's going to get along better in this world and hopefully also to honor, glorify God and their behaviors and their actions. And so think of God, He's the perfect Father. And maybe you didn't have such a great role model that maybe your your dad was the one who shamed you and, and beat you, or maybe even abused you. And so you're you're skewed on God, and you think, Oh, I gotta earn your favor, God, I gotta earn this. The gospel says rest, rest in Christ. And the Pharisees missed this point. They missed it all. God was standing right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ. And they could not even see God himself, the God they claimed to worship and do all these things for because they were so into their customs. Look what Jesus says. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. All these things you've you've done to see God better. I'm standing in front of you. God in the flesh. And you don't even recognize who I am. Something went really wrong with their theology, didn't it? And then Jesus gives a very, very practical example for the Pharisees of how they were doing this. He says, verse 10, Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. So he quotes the scripture. Here's what Moses said. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that mean given to God, then you're no longer permitted permitted him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And in many things you do this. And so kind of the point there is scripture clearly says God calls children to honor and respect their parents. However, the Pharisees created this theological loophole to go around this. They could make a promise that at their death, they would give all their worldly goods, all their possessions, all their wealth to the work of God, which is that Hebrew word korban, meaning given to God. And so what they've done is now they said, all my wealth belongs to God. So therefore, my aging parents and those parents that he cared for, uh, sorry, mom and dad, you know, I, I would help you if I could, but I don't have any money. I don't have anything now. It's all God's. It's all his. So I can't help you now. I can't meet your need. I can't be there for you. But you understand, don't you? It's, it's not about you. It's about me and God here. All right. We got something here and that's more important, right? You get that? I guess so. I guess, you know, you're, you're, you're so righteous. I wish I could have been like you when I was your age, right? Um, you 're so holy, so we 'll we'll figure things out here. You go ahead and honor God with your sacrifices and Jesus says, you missed the whole point of it you 've missed the whole thing of honoring your mother mother and father you don 't honor God by discarding your parents. if you want to honor God, you care for your parents you, you 're there for them you honor them, you give to them in their time of need and so Jesus Brings it very, very practical down to earth for them. And he says, you do this in a lot of things, and many things. You know what this tells me? This tells me that we're really good at self-deception, aren't we? We're self-swindlers. We find ways to basically validate whatever we want to do. Whatever sin that we want to justify, we can find a loophole to do so. We're great at that. You know why? Because Jeremiah the prophet said, The heart is deceitful, above all, desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is deceitful. Who you are and what motivates you can be very, very easy to just deceive yourself on and about and try to rationalize and say, Oh, no. It's coming from a good place. It's for God. It's for this. It's for that. And all along, you ignore God's commands. You're blind to your blindness. And that's the danger of legalism. The danger of legalism is seeking morality apart from the gospel of Jesus, apart from the word of God. It's finding your morality in something other than God and his revealed word to you. Yes really, really take this application seriously because I think grace strives not to be a church of legalism. We really do. But yet, even in our desire not to be legalistic, we can put things in place in our life which are good things and try to find our morality and righteousness from those things, thinking we're going to some way renovate our heart and change our heart through our efforts or through something that that we do or we don't do. And no amount of uh, rigorous discipline, no amount of spiritual discipline in and of itself can change your heart. No working against a bad habit in your own power can change your heart. No beating yourself up over guilt with guilt and shame is gonna change your heart. No running from certain situations, locations, or relationships even have the power to change your heart. Why? you can't outrun you you can't get away from you and the heart is wicked and the heart needs renovation from Jesus on Jesus alone only he can do the work to change us to make us what he's called us to be it's about him you see it's, it's very slight because those things some of those things can be positive things can be part of that process but you leave Jesus behind and you've done exactly what the Pharisees did. So what should you do? You're sitting here today, and you're like, you are exposed my hypocrisy. The word has pointed out my sin. I'm finding, trying to find my righteousness in a lot of things other than Jesus Christ. What should you do? Well, Scripture, Jesus again and again in Scripture tells us this word, repent. To repent. And here's the thing. If you're going to pray, God, expose my heart, reveal my heart, then repentance can happen. But even the fact of trying to diagnose your own heart is a problem because on your own, you can't do it. It has to be a Holy Spirit thing. It has to be a God thing to show you those things. So if you're going to repent, you need to ask the Holy Spirit, reveal to me my wayward heart. Reveal to me the legalism the sickness that's in my heart and to get to the heart of repentance we need to allow God to dig deeper than sorrow for sin momentary, momentary apologies and regret and we need God to do what only he can do it's a God job to change our heart and so it's easy you know we we, we come out of here and we say you know I do need to change some things. I do need to repent of some things. I do need to change some things. But if your life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, pretty much stays on the same course that you're currently on, if it's not aimed toward Jesus, then you're going to arrive back here maybe next Sunday or the Sunday after and pretty much be in the same state, same situation. Because you're not building your life upon Jesus Christ. You're not building your life and your identity upon Him and Him alone. So you need to run to grace. You need to run to Jesus every day. Know Him. Be in communion with Him. Seek Him, not just to read the Word so you can check it off your list. And some days we have those days, but it's about knowing God through His Word. It's about praying because we love God and we desire to know God and have a relationship with God. It's not about just doing the stuff so we can say we did it. We can turn into little Pharisees when that day after day after day is, that's what our, really what we're about. Aim to Jesus. Look to Jesus. This conversation with the Pharisees is going to continue on next week and we'll finish this conversation. I'm going to give you some practical things that we can do. But honestly, doing sometimes is the problem if the being doesn't start first. And they go hand in hand, but we have to know, we have to allow God to change and renovate our heart, and then we can live for his glory and not our own. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word you've given to us, and God, may we build our life upon you and your word. Help us to remember daily the the parable that Jesus gave of the man who built his house on his own wisdom, his own words, his own truth. And when the storms of life, which will inevitably come, showed up at his doorstep, his house crumbled. But the house that was built upon you stood strong. And God, I pray that those who desire to know you will begin to build their life upon you. Their aim, their focus, their... their their heart's motivations will begin to change and those areas where it's mixed and we're not sure and we're not really we don't understand what what motivates us and what we're about God that you will expose those that we'll repent of those things and you'll create a a new mindset a new heart within us and God we love you we thank you for your patience and your kindness which leads us to repentance we thank you that you're a good father who loves us in Jesus name we pray